In our, um, in our area, um, particularly Logan County, for some reason, has a problem with church hopping. I don't think you do. I don't think we do. This is actually something that pastors talk about sometimes when we get together. There are certain people or, or certain demographics maybe who are kind of chasing after something when it comes to church. Maybe they're following their friends. Maybe it's a sense of nostalgia. Maybe they hear the buzz of something going on at a certain church and they just have to check it out for a while, which leads them to checking it out for a couple of years until the buzz sometimes pops up at another church. Sometimes that buzz is a new young pastor or the youth ministry seems to be happening at the moment. Um, sometimes it's the band or the fun events that the church puts on, but certainly at the root of it, I think, is a lack of commitment to a specific local church. And, and I, would, I would equate this kind of church hopping with dating around, or to put it a little bit more bluntly, which is what I really think, sleeping around. And so we all, we so often all want the fun benefits of the local church without any kind of covenant commitment. And when that certain church gets boring, well then it's time to spice up our ecclesiastical lives and quietly search for some excitement on the side at first, but soon it will be in the open. Now I say this knowing two things, that many of you have come from other churches and although I would not categorize you as church hoppers at all, I hope that you understand that, I myself came here from another church. This really leads us to the second thing, and that is that there are reasons to leave a church. I want to acknowledge this. In fact, in some cases, we are compelled to leave a church. For example, if the elders are teaching or are allowing to be taught what is outright heresy, you must separate yourself from that church. In fact, staying to fight the battle is likely to make less of a statement than separating yourself from the church and its leadership, declaring them, in fact, sometimes the heretics that they are. And a heretic is one who teaches another gospel. Additionally, we are, we are called to separate ourselves from elders, churches, who tolerate unbiblical alternatives to the doctrines that are most fundamental to the faith. Romans chapter 16 tells us that these people, in allowing such teaching to stand, actually causes division. And God demands that you remove yourself from such a church. Another reason that we are compelled to leave a church is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, which tells us that there are those who have the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul says to Timothy. If the church is marked by utter hypocrisy, we are compelled to leave. Now, there are also some valid reasons where we might choose to leave a church and yet are not compelled for example, if you desire better teaching or you find a church that more closely aligns with your particular doctrinal beliefs or maybe they just simply take God, His Word, and, and the worship of Him more seriously or as is the case for many of us in here, 
Maybe the church is just simply falling apart for a variety of reasons and you need a place to rest. A place to rest in the finished work of Christ. But there's another reason why we are compelled to leave a church. And that is if the church has an utter disregard for biblical church discipline. In his second letter to the Thessalonian church, Paul writes this, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And again, a little bit later, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. We can apply that to church leadership. In other words, if a church, particularly the elders of a church, if they do not obey the scriptures, we therefore are to have nothing to do with them. We're to leave. Now, I need to say this. Um, what we are really talking about here are those serious, damnable sins. These are the sins that, we, um, that lead to destruction. Now, there are sins that we commit against each other, for example, but we forgive even sometimes without being asked. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So our normal default position toward one another is that we are to be quick to forgive. And so what we're talking about here when we bring up church discipline are those sins that only lead to destruction. Paul mentions idleness there in 2 Thessalonians. In other places, he mentions divisiveness, not holding to the truth of God's word, slander, gossip, all things that can cause destruction either to, to families or to churches, right? And this is especially true of the sin that so easily entangles so many in our society and so many in our churches today, sexual immorality. And any church that tolerates sins that fall into that category is a church that is to be marked and avoided. One of the interesting things about our, um, our current cultural moment is that many of these churches, they're actually marking themselves. They're putting rainbow flags out front. They're putting some code words in their slogans, marking them as celebrating sexual immorality. What happens to a church that fails to deal with those who are, who are involved with destructive sins? What happens to a church that fails to deal, refuses to deal, with those who are involved in such destruction? The answer to that is that not only does that individual or maybe that family have, have to face that destruction, but it will ultimately spread in one way or another through the entire church. Some of you in this room have seen this firsthand in churches that no longer exist because sexual immorality slipped in, was not dealt with, and the church was destroyed. And so we pick up today in our study of 1 Corinthians 
where the Apostle Paul deals with an infestation in chapter 5. I want to read this chapter this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. These are heavy things. I'm going to be as, I know there are kids in the room, so we are not going to be explicit in any way, but these are heavy things to talk through. Let me read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. I think we should stop and pray. Lord, this is a difficult and heavy chapter. Um, It's a difficult topic to talk about. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would convict us of sin and um, also comfort those who who are brokenhearted. Comfort the repentant, Lord. I pray that you would use even this chapter to build up the body of Christ here, that we might be holy and blameless, standing before you, clothed in Christ's righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, since the Reformation, um, Reformed churches have seen church discipline, this concept, as one one of the marks of a true church. In fact, in Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1561, so early on in the midst of the Reformation, it, it contains this section, Article 29, Belgic Confession. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known from which no man has a right to separate himself. This paragraph presumes what we would sometimes now call church membership. In recent history, and, and this, is, this is actually uniquely modern and uniquely American, in recent history, some have rejected the notion of 
church membership. They will say, well, membership isn't in the Bible. I would simply point them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the word member, speaking specifically of body life in the church, is used nine times. But this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, isn't a defense of church membership, and I'm not going to make it into that today. Rather, it is clear instruction for the church to insist on church discipline. And while this teaching can seem hard to swallow at first, some churches have abused people in the name of church discipline. We can acknowledge that. But this is a vital practice for the purity of the church's witness. The church should be a hospital for sinners. It should be a place where grace abounds for sinners. Yet for those who live as a law unto themselves, those sinners, church members, who refuse to repent when confronted and instead harden their hearts, must be removed from the fellowship the Scripture teaches us, barred from the table, or excommunicated is some of the words. And incidentally, this does not mean shunned at all. It just means don't eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Or you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. We sometimes say with the, that we need to have, we often should say, that the goal of church discipline is a hope of a future sincere repentance and restoration. It's not punitive, it's not punishing, any more than disciplining our kids is punitive. We're not punishing for the sake of punishing, we're disciplining for the sake of instruction and growth. Well, the question that we have to ask is, is why? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to talk about this? Why can't we just cover it with grace, as some places will say? Why, why does Paul come down so hard on the Corinthians here in chapter 5? The answer is that the Corinthians are in grave danger of becoming an unholy assembly, because as verses 1 and 2 says, they have an infestation of sin. They have an infestation of sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul has spent really the first four chapters of this book, and we went through this. It's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but we went through those first four chapters as Paul kind of lays a theological foundation and he, and he reasserts his authority over them as Christ's apostle. And so he turns his attention here to some specific urgent matters, beginning here, and, and he's going to keep going with some other urgent matters, but he begins with this infestation of sin here. But the hints of this coming strong rebuke, and chapter 5 is a strong rebuke of this church. The hints of this were there at the end of chapter 4. So just look up at beginning at verse 18. Those last couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 4 says this, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these uh, find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with the spirit of love and gentleness? They're arrogant. They're all talk. 
And so Paul is coming after them pretty harshly here in chapter 5. And so a report has come to him. A word has come to him. He's gotten from the church. In fact, they've written him a letter about what's really going on there. And that takes away any reason for their boasting. It proves that they are not wise, that they should not be held in honor, and that he would be justified in coming to them as an instrument of God's wrath. See, the transition between chapters 4 and 5 is not as abrupt as, as we might think. Um, Paul is angry. Paul is sad. He's like a father who hears of the sins of his children. But he's also shocked. He's appalled that not only, not only that such brazen immorality could be committed by a Christian, but that the church was proud of it. See how gracious we are? That's their attitude. But Paul says it's actually reported. He's saying this, I can't believe what I'm hearing about you. Now, the the immorality itself is only kind of explained here, and I'm not going to get specific or graphic. But imagine, or, or don't, how bad this immorality must have been since even the pagans of ancient Corinth would not tolerate it. Let me just say, they were immoral. We could say they were an open and affirming society, probably in more ways than the modern United States is. But the real kicker here was that this was an ongoing relationship that was being tolerated by the church. Look at how gracious we are. We know this offends some of you, but we're just going to cover all of this with grace and we're not going to judge. Who am I to judge after all? Look at how gracious we are. The problem with their attitude is that they were operating in direct opposition to God's revealed word, in direct opposition to to Scripture. They were even even opposed in direct opposition to God's revealed moral law. Now now hold that thought right there. Because sometimes we say to, to ourselves, God will understand. My situation is different. The scriptures don't apply to me. That obscure passage in the Old Testament, that can't mean what it says. This is God's law. And he speaks of this this issue very specifically. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, he says this. This is the law. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And that comes in the midst of a whole bunch of similar laws, similar verses in Leviticus 18. And at the end, at the end of that chapter, God explains the reason. Leviticus chapter 18, let me just read verses 24 to 30. God explains the reason for these laws, of which this is they are breaking one of them. So Leviticus 18, 24 says this. This is the Lord speaking. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, the whole list of laws. For by all these, the nation I am driving out before you have become unclean. 
And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who, persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. God is reminding his people that he had said, be holy for I am holy. And the Canaanites, those who, had, those who were in the land before them, had become unclean. They had become unholy. And this unholiness only spreads and, and infects the whole land, the, whole, the entire community. And we see this all around us. We see this all around us today in what we would have to call the spirit of the age. There are, many, there are so many people today who are getting caught up with all kinds of sexual sin including homosexuality, and now transgenderism because it is the spirit of the age, because it is cool and trendy and celebrated by pop stars, because it gets attention. And if we allow sin to fester in the church, it will only continue to grow and spread. And by the way, this is not only true about sexual sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Sin spreads. Sin that is not confronted and is not repented of will only continue to spring up and cause trouble, eventually defiling the entire assembly. And so both the law and the Apostle Paul, so the New Testament, tells us that it must be cut off. Verse 29 there, at Leviticus 18.29 says, For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. And notice in 1 Corinthians 5.2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. This should, this should drive us to mourn. But instead of mourning over their sin, they're arrogant. And we sometimes are arrogant too. Do we think we know better than God's law? Frankly, we avoid God's law especially Leviticus, right? Leviticus is a tough book. It's tough to read. It's tough to understand. It's uncomfortable. We don't know how to understand the differences, for example, between not eating shellfish or, or pork or cutting our hair in certain ways or wearing certain material t-shirts and not committing fornication or keeping the Sabbath day holy. And so what we often do is we disregard all of it, which eventually means that we break all of it. People often say that church discipline doesn't seem very loving. And I, and I am sure that there have been times when it has not been loving. But this kind of 
This kind of discipline is actually, it's kind of a funny thing. See, Jesus lays out, he lays out some some clear steps for correcting a fellow Christian in in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. We're actually not going to turn there now. But he lays out some clear steps, and, and in that scenario, there are three or four, depending on how you count them, steps that we go through as Christians and even as the church when it gets up near the end in order to bring about, the reason that we do it is to bring about the restoration of a, of a broken relationship between two believers. But then we come to Paul's writing, where he sometimes skips some of the steps. So for example, in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he tells Titus this, he says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul skips steps of going and privately confronting and going with another. and He just says, have nothing more to do with this. Warn him once, warn him a second time, then have nothing to do with him. See, the thing to remember here is that we're talking about those who are unrepentant in their sin. We're talking about people who refuse to change. And that refusal will only cause destruction both to themselves and to the church. And so right here at the end of verse 2, Paul just simply says, remove him. They must expel the sinner. But lest we think that this is about removing Um, what we might call unsavory people from the church, it's actually about expelling sin. That's important. This is about expelling sin. Pick it up in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we really haven't addressed this yet, um, but it's actually clear from a few statements he makes a little bit later, even here down in verse 9 and and then also in chapter 7 that the, the church has written to him for advice. So they are, he is responding to them. And as soon as Paul heard what was happening in the Corinthian church, he decisively determined what must be done. And in verses 4 and 5, he gives them specific instructions. He doesn't say, now, now go to him privately. One of you should go to him privately and ask him to stop. He says, remove him. He goes straight to it. And one thing is clear from how he he words all of this. This is not merely removing somebody from the membership roster, right? He's not saying delete their name from the list. There there are grave spiritual consequences here. And and once this man is, is excommunicated, is removed, he's going to be outside of the safety and the protection of the church. And he's going to be delivered over to the consequences of his sin. And he will dwell where Satan dominates. He will be outside the camp, outside of the safety and the protection of the city walls. Remember Peter's warning from from 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's to go out there. He's to go outside of the safety and the protection of the church. 
Remove him. And remember what Paul says elsewhere about Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The consequence of all of this is that his flesh will be destroyed, he says. This could mean a couple of things. Um, Really, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. In other words, it might mean both, but not necessarily. So first, it could mean physical destruction. Some of us have seen this. In fact, I think it often actually means this. Someone wanders off into sin. Gross, destructive, immoral sin. And the next thing that you know, the next thing that you hear, they're either having some serious health problems or they're dead. Some of you have probably heard about that before. How many times do we read of God um, striking dead an enemy in the Old Testament? Or even remember what happened to Judas after he betrayed Christ. He committed suicide. He was dead. He suffered physically. But this also could mean, and probably at the very least, it means spiritual destruction. But for the genuine believer, it is a destruction that leads to repentance and reconciliation. I want to be clear about that. For those who have genuinely trusted in Christ, even if they get caught up or put themselves into destructive sin... Those who are genuinely believers, this destruction will lead to repentance and reconciliation. Romans chapter, 12 verses, or chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a promise. This is a call to Repentance. And of course, we believe that serious, unrepentant sin absolutely can affect the spirit and the body together. In fact, this is what I think happens most often. James chapter 5 talks about this. James chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, um, James writes this. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Sometimes when we get caught up in these kind of destructive sins, we end up getting sick. I want to be clear, if you're sick, it's not necessarily because you were involved in some sort of destructive or secret sin. We shouldn't even think that that's the case, but it could be. I'll tell you one quick story I probably have told you before. When I was in Illinois and I had trouble with my back, have I told you this story before? I had a hard time getting up every single morning. Just backaches. I, I was, I don't know, this is 20 years, I don't know how long ago it was, 15 years ago. I wasn't, I was younger than I am now. I wasn't very old. 
And I couldn't stand up straight every single morning when I would get up. I had a hard time walking because my attitude toward the church that I was serving, toward the senior pastor and the elders in particular, was sinful. And the Lord was leading me, I know this now, I didn't know it then, to resign. I needed to leave that situation. And when I did, God healed me. When I repented of those attitudes and got out of that situation, God healed my back. And I haven't had back problems since. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I want to briefly address verse 4 here as we kind of keep moving through this. Um, Let me read verse 4 again. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, just stop there. There is an authority that is vested in the assembly of the saints. In other words, this isn't a speech. When we come together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we proclaim the words of God, this is not just a a family gathering. There's actually something happening here. It's something authoritative. Christ has promised to be with us. Jesus calls this authority the keys of the kingdom. And in Matthew 18, he uses this phrase. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This means that the church and the elders of the church have the authority given by Christ himself to remove unrepentant sin unrepentant sinners. But you need to understand that this is, as I said, this is not just simply deleting somebody's name from earthly records. Removing unrepentant sinners is is the elders, is the church saying, we can no longer affirm that you're a believer because you're living just like the world. You refuse to repent of your sins. Here's the point. These things must be taken very seriously. And in these difficult times, Jesus has promised to be there. We need to keep in mind that in this this chapter, Paul is not addressing the man. He's not addressing the man. He's already come to his conclusion about him. Instead, he's rebuking the church, and he's calling for the church's repentance. So so there's an infestation of sin, and that sin needs to be expelled, and their own sin needs to be repented of. So repenting of sin, Look at pick it up in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, are really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This church here has been boasting of their spiritual advancement. I bet the word grace is in their slogan somewhere. The place for grace. Or whatever. But they're really just filled with pride. Your boasting is not good. And not only will the sexual sin spread if they don't deal with it, but the pride is going to spread. Just like the root of bitterness in Hebrews. It's going to spread. 
Sin spreads throughout the community when it's not confronted. And so Paul uses this familiar analogy here, the, the leaven and the dough. Now, I didn't know this until this week when I was preparing this. Um, leaven is not technically the same as yeast. Some of you might know this. It's not technically the same. See, in a society where bread was made in the home daily or, or nearly daily, um, it would have been rare for a, a home to get actual yeast. It was very expensive. And so a little dough, when they were making the bread every day, they would set aside a little bit of that dough that had yeast in it, leavened in it, and it would be added to the next batch every time they made bread, every day. It's kind of along the lines of a sourdough starter, I think. I'm not a baker, but I think. Um, but eventually, that would either get used up, it would become so sort of diluted that they needed to get some more, and so it needed to be, or it would, it would ferment and turn kind of nasty, and so they would throw it out. And Paul connects this to the Passover, which seems odd. He connects this to that time when God delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. So why does Paul make this connection here? Well, in Exodus chapters 12 and 13, we read of God's instructions for the Passover celebration, um, specifically the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So just listen to his instructions. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 through 20 says this. I'll just read this paragraph. This is God's instruction for the people of Israel about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, let that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. That's pretty clear. He repeats it several times. No leaven. If you eat any of that leavened bread, you shall be cut off. And this was to remind the Israelites that they have been called, they have been, they have been led and released out of their slavery by God himself. They are no longer contaminated by the gods of Egypt, but are holy and set apart to the Lord. The same is true for the church. We have been set apart as holy. We have been called out from the world. And Paul is actually bringing this idea of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and being set apart. He's bringing it into the, into the new covenant, into the covenant that we have with Christ. In fact, he brings it into the new covenant feast, as it were, the communion meal, by saying in verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
He's talking about the Lord's table. He's going to get more specific in a little bit, but he's talking about coming to the Lord's table. And so when we come to the table regularly, frequently, having cleansed our houses of sin, whether it is the malice that leads to, leads to the factions in the first four chapters of the book or the evil of immorality, we come to the table with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We come to the table with redeemed hearts being made holy because Christ is holy. See, Scripture takes holiness very seriously. We cannot, we must not wink at sin in our midst. We must not. Sin in the church is an infestation and it must be expelled. That means that we must repent of our own sin. Even the small, insignificant sins that nobody knows about. We must repent. We must live lives of constant repentance and instead follow the requirements of holiness. These are the requirements of holiness. Look at verse 9. He says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not to even eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He's already told them, um, literally, not to get mixed up, is what he means here, with the sexually immoral. He's already written this, this to them. This is evidently his second, this is evidently second Corinthians, actually. He's already written them one letter, and he has told them, verse 9, not to associate or not to get mixed up with the sexually immoral or, or those who live by the morals of this world. But as verse 10 makes clear, he's not talking about unbelievers there, because that would be impossible. That's true, isn't it? That would be impossible. Now, <clears throat> just sort of as an aside here, because Paul takes this aside, I'm in favor of supporting Christian businesses, especially local ones. But do we only shop at Christian grocery stores? That would be impossible, right? Or only sell our products and services to moral people? That's going to become increasingly impossible. At some point, you're going to do business with an immoral person. You'll have certain unsavory customers and clients. But what we are not to do is admit them to the table. Those who claim to be Christians and yet are living in unrepentant sin, we are not to admit to the Lord's table. Don't even eat with such a one, he says. Now right here, Paul is not talking about going out to lunch with a co-worker who's living with his girlfriend. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that we must avoid every interaction with, with Christians who are immoral and unrepentant. This is about life within the church. He's still talking about celebrating the festival, coming to the table, the Lord's table. And so we need to be we need to be clear on, or what you need to understand today is that God expects His redeemed people to live like they've been made new. That's sort of the simply put um, 
way to say this. God expects his redeemed people to live like they have been made new, to live like they have in fact been redeemed, set free from the sin. He expects those who have been freed from their sin to to stay far away from it. And to emphasize his point, he says here in verses 12 and 13, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It is not our place. We do not have the authority to judge non-Christians. God will judge them. Our duty is to share the gospel with them. Do you know why? Because we are sinners who have been saved by grace. And all that we have has been given to us by our gracious God. It is our duty to continually proclaim to non-Christians the claims of Christ and his gospel. It is our duty to share the good news with them, that they can be set free from that sin. That they can be washed and made clean. But for those inside the church, Christ's church must be a, a disciplined church. He commands this. An undisciplined church is not a healthy church. It's a church that's infested, and while we might not see it right away, this infestation will eventually rot the whole church. And again, the the issue here is not that there are sinners in the church. The issue here is not that there are sinners in the church. Sinners belong in the church. If you believe that you are not a sinner, I would tell you that you better repent of that pride and go read 1 John immediately. This afternoon, or just now. But the good news here for us is that Christ has the power to free you from your sin. Even even that secret sexual sin that nobody knows about. Christ is building his church. He's conforming us to his image. He has called us to holiness. Be holy as I am holy. And so while we are a haven for sinners, and and this church is a haven for sinners, I know you and me. (laughs) There are sinners in here. While this church is a haven for sinners, it is only a haven for sinners who are repentant. Only for those who will turn to him for forgiveness and restoration. Because the glory of his name and the holiness to which he has called us is more important than anything else. The glory of his name and the holiness to which he has called us is more important than your feelings. It's more important than anything else. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Father, these are difficult um, words. We start examining our own hearts as we read through these things, wondering if anybody else knows or notices. And maybe it's not the same type of sin. Maybe it's... uh, the pride or bitterness or envy or gossip or equally destructive though. Father, I pray that we would 
that we would repent, that we would, you would give us what we need to repent, to turn to you, to ask for forgiveness and be restored. I pray that we would be a people of prayer. And Lord, as we come to the table, we don't, we don't presume to come um, trusting in our own righteousness. We can't read this and think that we should come because of anything that we have done. But in your great mercy, Father, we are not worthy as so much to gather up crumbs from your table. But you're a merciful and gracious Lord. Father, we pray that as we come to the table, as we celebrate, as we remember, as we rejoice, as we come solemnly but always rejoicing in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup, Lord, that we would be mindful of the death of Jesus Christ, that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith, that we may be united to him and he to us. And so with you and the Holy Spirit who is worthy of eternal thanks and praise. Father, we pray that you would work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.